from Wyoming Public Media. This, 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 is, this is spoken. Spoken. Spoken words. Spoken words. This is spoken words. I'm Micah Schweitzer. I'm thinking of our cultural moment now as men. We need to reclaim our stories, and we need to reclaim a kind of masculinity that is gentle and sure and able to interact with the world in a way that is coherent and whole, and that is not violent, and that doesn't disallow other human beings. This time we hear from Joe Wilkins. He's the author of the award-winning memoir, The Mountain and the Fathers. He's also written several poetry collections, including When We Were Birds, published in 2017. Wilkins lives with his wife and two children in Western Oregon, where he's associate professor of English at Linfield College. But he grew up in a desolate region of eastern Montana called the Big Dry. It's Badlands country, where the harsh, dry climate makes it tough to earn a living by farming and ranching. Wilkins says it's a land that chews up old and young alike, but also a place that rewards attention with astonishing beauty. For me, a lot of that began in childhood, growing up in the wide open West, just looking at things. I remember coming home from school and my favorite thing in the world to do was grab a snack and then run out the door into the fields. Um, I'd take my slingshot or I'd take a book and I'd just go tell myself big stories as I hiked through the North fields. And that was a lesson in attention and watching the cottonwoods day after day and seeing the hawks and eagles and seeing the grass yellow and go brittle. And so I think we have to practice it. Like anything, we have to practice. You have to practice paying attention on your walk to school, your walk to work. What do you notice? What's changing? What's here with you? Um, and then go seeking out other things as well. And see, see what you can bring to bear on your attention. See what you can bring into your field of vision. Think about all of your senses. What is it that they're telling you about the world around you? What is it that they're showing you? Those are important things. Those are, those are the root of everything in some ways. And so I think paying attention is, is one of the greatest lessons we can learn, and it's something we have to teach ourselves and then continue to practice again and again and again. Wilkins left Montana after high school to pursue his education. He says the distance proved to be another gift for his writing. It helped him see not only the big dry more clearly, but also to understand the person he'd become because of that place. Jobs took him from Idaho to Mississippi, Iowa, and now Oregon, but every place received his loving attention and infused his poetry and stories with the beauty he finds in common human experiences. Here's Joe Wilkins introducing and reading two poems from his new collection. The first one was written during a happy time after the birth of his daughter. We were living in this wonderful little farmhouse in a little town in Iowa, and so our family felt so whole and good, and everything around us seemed to be sort of coming apart. It was the middle of the recession, and the upper Midwest was hit especially hard. And so I was trying to keep these two things in mind at once. And I think as a parent, that's what you often have to do, keep in mind that your children are, of course, your children, and, and you love them beyond all measure and reason, but that all these other children are on this earth too, and deserve that same love. And to keep those two things in mind is quite hard. This is called Complete with Drought and Economic Downturn. Mock orange gone rusty and slack, the hard, weedy pinks of hollyhocks. Oh, what might drink this dry light and shine? In a season of such want, it seems nearly indecent. My child's brimful laugh, her delight in the alley's sun-blown gravel. The real work is to remain human, to remember that like the ashy stone she fists and studies and turns to offer, she is only one among the others. Oh, I know. 
yet fall still to my knees, make of my hands a cup. This rock I receive as if her touch were alchemic, as if her choosing and her giving are enough. And I wanted to read the title poem from this book. And this poem is called My Son Asks for the Story About When We Were Birds. And this comes from a number of years ago. I tell my kids a story most nights before bed. And their favorite stories are stories about me when I was a boy and made bad choices. But this night, Walter, my son, was about half asleep. And I asked him what kind of story he wanted. And he said, tell me the story about when we were birds. And I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> I'll give that a shot. And then I told a story that night, but then this poem I started writing the next morning, kind of revising that story and into what became this. My son asks for the story about when we were birds. When we were birds, we veered and wheeled. We flapped and looped. It's true. We flew. When we were birds, we dined on tiny silver fish in the watery hearts of flowers. When we were birds, we sistered the dragonfly, brothered the nightwise bat, and sometimes when we were birds, we rose as high as we could go, light, cold, and strange, and when we opened our beaked mouths, sundown poured like wine down our throats. When we were birds, we worshipped trees, rivers, mountains, sage knots, rain, gizzard rocks, grub-shot dung piles, and like all good beasts and wise green things, the mothering sun. We had many gods when we were birds. And each in her own way was good to us, even winter fog, which found us huddling in salal or silk tassel, singing low, sweet songs and closing our blood-rich eyes and sleeping the troubled sleep of birds. Yes, even when we were birds, we were sometimes troubled and tired, sad for no reason, and so pretended we were not birds and fell like stones, the earth hurtling up to meet us, our trust bones readying to be shattered, our unusually large hearts pounding for nothing. Yet at the last minute we would flap and lift, and as we flew shudderingly away, we told ourselves that this falling we would remember. We thought we would always be birds. We didn't know. We didn't know we could love one another with such ferocity that we should. Several of the poems in When We Were Birds are titled as notes to his unborn son, recalling his earlier memoir, The Mountain and the Fathers. That book is a reckoning with life on the big dry, starting with a reflection about the night of his father's death. It goes like this. My wife and I are on our way home from visiting friends in Chicago. It is evening, our headlights beating back the dark along this flat, straight Midwestern freeway, and I am resting in the passenger seat, my forehead on the cool window glass. Just out of Moline, I see beyond the fence line the quick blink and turn of yellow eyes, and like that, I am a small boat drifting back on a muddy snowmelt river of years. Like that, I am a broken-hearted fatherless boy in the lonely-making distances of the interior. Like that, I want more than anything to rise and look again on my father. We leave and never leave. We grow up and never grow up. We grieve and grieve and grieve. But sometimes we remember too. We turn and face that grief, remembering is the opposite of pretending. It is the beginning of telling the truth to yourself about yourself. Yet I know, why did my grandfather, gentle cowboy that he was, have his hat on inside? Why the anointing then, when my father was already hours dead? Memory is never enough. Memory spins and skitters, winks in the dark, like an oil slick memory fails and rainbows the light. It is in the currents of story that the boy begins to understand 
that the boy becomes a man, becomes a better man. In story, we learn to live like human beings in the dark houses of our bodies. For beyond anything we can do, we are alone in there, and we rightly spite that lonesome darkness. We reach out with what it is we have, fumble for the hand of the other, mother, brother, sister, lover, son, and give to them our heart, our story. There is one last thing I remember. My grandfather takes me in his hard arms. He pulls me up and out of my wool blankets and patch quilt. He sets me gently on the edge of the old army bunk I share with my brother. He tells me I must get dressed, but I am sleepy and do not want to wake and get dressed. I try to lie down and curl again beneath the covers. My grandfather does not shake or reprimand me. He simply takes me again in his arms. Your father needs you, he says. You need to go to your father. After his father's death, Wilkins was raised by his mother and elderly grandfather. It's significant that Wilkins started this memoir as he was stepping into the role of father himself and thinking about the kind of father he wanted to be. In a lot of ways, I think the writing of my memoir, The Mountain and the Fathers, was a coming to terms with the loss of my father and a, and, and a way to know him, more than just a way to sort of work through some, some anger, some sadness, um, but a way to know him, a way to bring, bring his absence and then also his presence in some ways back into the world and back into my own world. And it became increasingly important, though this is something I found myself gravitating to right away as a writer. Um, you know, these were the stories that mattered most to me. As I started writing, it was later in life, and um, we were starting our family, and I realized I needed very much to understand him and to understand how to be a father. And so the memoir, in many respects, was a way to, to bring him back into my own life so I might do the same, so I might be able to be a father. And of course, I had other examples, um, but I do think that, that, that he was an important one that I was missing, that I hadn't reckoned with fully. And my grandfather, who's a big part of the memoir as well, um, absolutely is important to me as a father. His example, his patience, um, his sureness, his ability to see who I was and allow me to be that. Uh, he was this great old cowboy, um, the kind that you still find in places like Montana and Wyoming. Uh, more comfortable on a horse than he ever was in a car. And he knew right away that I wasn't him. Um, I got bucked off every horse I ever tried to ride, more or less. And though I worked hard, I didn't have the knack for the work that he did. The work that came easy to his hands came hard to mine. And what came easy to me, of course, was, was reading, was school, was thinking. And he, he saw that and he knew it. No, he only had an eighth grade education. That's, that's very early on where he pointed me. And so that example, him being able to see me for who I was, still be a model for my own life um, in his respect, his solidity, his ability to care and to be firm. That was absolutely a model for the way I try to father. But um, what mattered most was his ability to see me and to allow me to be me, even as he was someone different. And I think that that's often what I'm trying to do as a father, is see my children and understand who they are and see them for who they are and help them be those best little selves, but to do it in a way that allows them to be themselves and not me. I think in our stories of fathers and sons, that's a, an incredibly important one, and it's one I'm trying to remember all the time. The memoir is a personal story of loss and the struggle to survive, but Wilkins uses his personal experience to explore the losses and struggles of the land, the people, and the culture of the Big Dry. Wilkins attends throughout to the way the place shapes its people, for good and bad, and invites people to think about the necessity of beauty in life. Many of the older men that I knew in the community I grew up in, including my grandfather, 
were very hard men. They'd seen a lot in their lives and they'd worked hard and their hands were those huge, meaty, um, strong hands that, that you don't see so often anymore. And they were often hands that were very scarred, you know, fingers crooked, even missing fingers or scars from a bob wire wound here or a knife cut there. Um, but what I was struck by for many of these men, and not all of them, but many of them, was, was their gentleness as well. And I think one of the reasons for their gentleness was the fact that they had grown up in a time when they got there that they were allowed to understand the beauty of the place they lived. They rode horses and they ranched in a way that wasn't too big, that didn't decimate the landscape or radically alter it into ways that, in ways that were unbeautiful, ways that were hurtful to the landscape. And so they had, they, they had a passing familiarity with beauty. They also grew up in a time when the community for its sort of social and community and artistic needs needed to look into itself. So you would go to community dances, right? And you'd see people dancing and people were beautiful when they were dancing. And people would make things. They would make bones and they would, you know, they would whittle things out of wood um, because they had to. That was what you had for culture, for community. And then as wider forms of culture and wider narratives begin to impress upon these communities. And by that, I mean, of course, television and chain stores and things and all of the stuff that you get when we would drive to Billings and what we would take for culture began to press in and sort of suppress some of that beauty out of us, I think. And so as a young person growing up, we didn't, you know, I don't remember going to community dances. I don't, I remember very few people who practiced an art or who did something that put beauty back into the world and I remember an agriculture that was marked more by feedlots and overgrazing than an agriculture that was marked by horses and free range. And so that beauty wasn't part of our equation anymore. It wasn't part of how we were making our lives on that landscape. And it could be, and it had been, and I think that familiarity with beauty was something that differentiated the generations there. Uh, and that's something that, that mattered to me, I, especially as I grew older and I realized what kind of human person and what kind of man I wanted to be. And I wanted to be someone who had that gentleness, someone who had that affinity for beauty. Wilkins describes his writing as something of a salvage or reclamation project, seeking to take back and recast stories in ways that seemed truer to him. And he invites us all to reclaim our stories. I think one of the things we need to do as Westerners, especially, is to reclaim our stories, um, to take them away from Hollywood, to take them away from the two easy narratives, the older Westerns that want us to think about the West in a particular way. So we need to we need to reclaim those stories. And I think we need to do that too, especially, and I'm thinking of our cultural moment now, as men. We need to reclaim our stories, and we need to reclaim a kind of masculinity that is gentle and sure and able to interact with the world in a way that is coherent and whole, and that is not violent, and that doesn't disallow other human beings. And so we need to reclaim those stories. And that's something I've been trying to do both in my prose and my poetry for a long time is reclaim those stories, recast them, um, go back and find those Western stories and tell them in this way that seems much truer to me. This episode was produced by Teo Basquiat. I'm Micah Schweitzer. You can find more episodes of Spoken Words at wyomingpublicmedia.org or wherever you get your podcasts. If that happens to be on iTunes, please leave us a rating or review to help other people find the show. Spoken Words is a collaboration between the University of Wyoming's MFA in Creative Writing program and Wyoming Public Media.